Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just a show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We have John Golnack. He is a vice president at Attico. All right, let's start off with the jobs numbers here, because not only is midterms going to be one of the major drivers, but the jobs numbers as well. John, apologies on my part. Let's start with your initial reaction to the jobs numbers today. What, what was great was, you know, you see the markets going up and down. There's a lot of good in this jobs report. Um, and, then, and then there's ways that, you, you know, you could interpret it a little bit differently. But what I love about it, wage growth, you know, starting to slow down. We're seeing stability. That's going to allow companies that, you know, that confidence to continue to hire. The quits are holding steady. So some of the retention strategies that our employers are putting in, really slowing down the churn that we saw a couple of quarters ago. So I like to see that consistency. One of the things that Powell stated, though, was that demand can, you know, substantially is exceeding supply right now. So I think we do need to look at that labor participation rate. We're holding flat there. Um, we've got to continue to focus on upskilling and reskilling these workers so we can get some of those leisure and hospitality colleagues that really haven't been enjoying the fruit right now since COVID. We need to get them in some other industries right now so we can uptake this participation rate. And I think I think we're going to be in, in a good spot. But, yeah, there's still some pause, I think, in the labor market, waiting to see what happens with these midterms. Yeah, it's a really interesting point you make there. I want to get into that a little bit more about the dislocation between the openings that we're seeing and the participation rate. Is that starting to come together in terms of people getting into the jobs that are open, or are we uh, still seeing a gap there? We're still seeing a gap there, but we're making progress. We're seeing employers take a look at their job descriptions, looking at the, you know, the, the barriers to entry. Do you need a high school diploma? Can we do some on-the-job training? We're also seeing you know, a reemergence of some vocational and technical trade schools coming up. You know, if we can't upskill or reskill, we're going to have to create some workers to come in. So I see people getting more creative, opening up their gaze and letting, letting new people come in. Um, it's just a question of that's a culture change. It's going to take a little bit more time. And as we continue, you know, to improve, we're seeing so much hiring in healthcare. It's been consistent. I mean, 47,000 per month compared to 9,000 per month, 22 versus 21. So what a huge investment in infrastructure. But, but you're right. There's a dislocation by sector. And until we can get the hole up in that participation rate, um, we still have to stay focused on reskilling and upskilling workers. 
Well, speaking of uh, a diversion by sector, I'm interested in the oil and gas sector specifically. I believe only 400 jobs were added in that sector, a sector that the Biden administration has been actively trying to really ramp up in terms of production and turn the industry saying, look, we are still in dealing with supply chain issues despite these record profits. We can't ramp up production that quickly. Where does the jobs market fall? Is there a little bit of catch up to be played by that sector? I think when you look at energy in general, it's been it's been growing. Energy has been a growing sector. So, you know, this this comes into can we get people to work around the clock? Can we get second, third shifts? You know, oil industry is not a nine to five job. So you're looking at a type of worker um, that is a very narrow base. So, again, this comes down to, you know, we need to reskill and bring people in to different industries like energy, like healthcare that are growing. Um, it's, it's challenging. But, you know, one of the other things I think is, is important to note, if you were to look at the ADP report, um, specifically, they had a comment there about company size and company size, 50 to 249 employees. They added 241,000 jobs per ADP. Now, if you look at that, that's virtually almost all the gains. So, so what that tells me a little bit, I interpret that as the larger companies right now have, have got a little bit of the talent. They're, they're holding right now. They've got strategy. They're waiting to see what happens in the midterms, but it's created an opportunity window for these small and mid-sized companies who have been fighting for the talent. They're finally starting to get some of it right now. So that was encouraging for me to see small and mid-sized companies really make some gains. Um, I think we'll see the fruit of that in, in the next couple of months. Certainly something we're going to keep our eye on. John Golnack of ADECO, we thank you as always uh, for joining us and apologies again for the intro. I look forward to having you back on the show. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the trade desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. What also never gets old is analysis from a certain gentleman who has just a real affinity for looking at things state by state. Uh, Of course, he has a background in muni bonds, so I feel like you never forget your first speak. Matthew Winkler, Editor-in-Chief Emeritus, joins me right here in studio. Real pleasure. I wanted, before we get into your column, is that true? You never forget your first speak? I think it's true, and it's always a delight to be with you. Oh, you're very sweet. Thank you. Um, Well, he wrote this incredible column about Ohio specifically. When you think about globalization, Ohio doesn't necessarily immediately come to mind. For me, it's New York or Hmm. L.A. maybe. (laughs) But uh, the port. Yeah, right. You know, somewhere near the water. Um, But he makes the argument that Ohio has actually benefited perhaps more than others from globalization. Walk us through that. So uh, you're absolutely right. If you are on the campaign trail, all you hear is very xenophobic 
comments about uh, businesses overseas from both the Democrat and the Republican candidates for Senate, uh, J.D. Vance on the Republican side and uh, Ryan uh, among the Democrats. What is the reality, however, is that Ohio is um, one of the greatest beneficiaries of globalization as measured by the fact that it has more foreign-owned factories per square thousand miles than any other state in the country. And if you break that down even more, uh, every business, the publicly traded giant Procter & Gamble to family-owned companies, they all are huge beneficiaries of trade with China, Canada, and Mexico. And uh, that's a long-running story. And if you consider that Probably the factory worker, as we know it historically, has been displaced mostly by automation. Ohio has actually been working because of globalization. So that's really the story, and it, and it doesn't stop. But nobody talks about this. And uh, every way you look at it, there's something like uh, almost 800 foreign factories in Ohio. You can't miss them. I mean, if you land in Columbus, for example, and just drive a little bit north, you hit Marysville, Ohio, which is the center of Honda's North American um, production no factory. Hmm. Of course, the, Matt, the argument that anti-globalists would make is that it's added to the wealth gap between rich and poor, that you know, so much labor can be farmed out to foreign countries and the U.S. doesn't get that much in return. Are you seeing that in Ohio? Well, not really, because Ohio has done very well recruiting uh, not just Honda, but Siemens, uh, for example, Air Liquide from France. Um, it's done a great job recruiting companies from overseas and letting them prosper in Ohio, paying very high wages, by the way. All of these companies that are foreign-owned that operate in Ohio are the ones that are providing the highest paying jobs. Now, the biggest employer in Ohio is Walmart. They have something like 55,000 uh, what they call associates earning less than $18 an hour. And by the way, you're very well aware that Walmart gets a lot of its stuff and has been for some time from China. Sure. So there's Walmart employing more Ohioans than any other company. And Ohio's okay with that because Walmart's the biggest employer in Ohio. So then factor in the politics of this now. What could change, perhaps, in Ohio, given some of this rhetoric? Well, unfortunately, that saying the truth is the, the first casualty, and we know it all <laughs> too well in our own profession of journalism. And um, this contradiction, uh, and that's really what it is, um, the lack of uh, honesty on the campaign trail, or even in the media narrative, uh, makes it difficult for people to accept what, in fact, uh, is uh, the reality for not just the U.S., but every modern economy in the world. We're all inter interdependent, really, um, and that's not going to go away. I mean, even with all of the recent hostility towards China, global trade is a reality, and uh, you know, your, your point about fair trade, that's something for politicians, obviously, to sort out. But in the meantime, people are working in Ohio because of globalization. I mean, in some way, Matt, is this just a matter of 
you know, China's an easier political punching bag than automation to some extent? Well, it's, it's easier insofar as China is an autocracy. I mean, where you want to call it a dictatorship. So uh, it's an easy target. Having said that, it's the second largest economy in the world, and it's the one that's grown the most uh, in uh, our lifetimes. So, um, yeah, you can assail China, but just about every global business that we know of uh, does business in China, and it's two ways. I mean, uh, Ohio, by the way, uh, exports quite a bit of its stuff to China, uh, it gets more of its stuff from China, but it's a two-way uh, trade, if you like, and that's uh, the reality for a lot of states, of course. Matt Winkler, uh, Bloomberg News' founder and editor-in-chief emeritus, I might add, wrote this incredible column. Folks, check it out on Bloomberg.com and, of course, Bloomberg Opinion, O-P-I-N. Go on your Bloomberg terminal. We are very excited to have him in studio, uh, and, of course, he has, I'm sure, more columns ahead of the midterms next week. We're very excited about this next guest uh, yes. joining us, especially ahead of midterms. A really crucial moment, not just for the markets, but for politics as well, is Governor Ned Lamont of the great state of Connecticut. He is running for re-election in 2022, of course, against Republican Bob Stefanowski. Governor, thank you, as always, for making the time uh, to join us uh, Myself and Nathan are, are very, very excited to have you. I want to start off with a question about your business background. This is at the end of the day, Bloomberg Radio. You and your opponent both have an extensive career in business and finance. But I'm curious if you think the Democratic Party has become too anti-business or their policies aren't promoting enough economic growth. That's certainly some of the criticism that the Democratic Party has faced. I'll tell you one thing, Grady. I think they'd be well served to have more people with a business background. Uh, you see some in the governor's world, and I think that's really positive. Um, I work very closely with Charlie Baker up in Massachusetts. We both have a, a business uh, background, which I thought was very helpful. Gina Raimondo next door to me in Rhode Island before she went on to commerce. And I, I do think I'm the first one um, in forever here in the state of Connecticut with a business. I started, I started up a business uh, 40 years ago, building telecommunication systems, came out of the cable TV, and it's the likes of experience that I bring to this job every day, knowing what it means to a small business, how our policies would impact a small business. You know, Governor, uh, your fellow governor, a Democrat of California, Gavin Newsom, has made no secret of his feeling that uh, your party, the Democrats, are failing when it comes to putting out a coherent economic message. Is that a view you share? And if so, uh, what can you do about it? I'll tell you what we've done here in Connecticut create something called advanced CT so I get all the business leaders at the table. No more of this adversarial relationship or two very different spheres. There are best advocates for the state, Nathan. I mean, I'm, I'm a homer. When a company's thinking about coming to the state or expanding the state, um, you know, you know what I'm going to say and how I'm going to push it. But when I can send them to somebody who's in advanced manufacturing or IT or life sciences, who's part of our advanced CT team, that's a good way to uh, reinvent and sell the company. Walk us through perhaps some of the key voter issues here. I mean, we've talked about inflation, the economy. A lot of us from, from Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television are talking about just how much that is going to drive the drive voters to the polls. But it's also crime. It's abortion. It's immigration. What would you say is the number one issue that is driving voters? I think the economy, uh, front and center. Uh, here in Connecticut, 
we've been flat as a pancake for 30 years. We hadn't added a new job in 30 years. Uh, and we were going from fiscal crisis to fiscal crisis. It was a pretty lousy story. And the last, um, you know, uh, four or five years, we're beginning to turn things around. And we've had four balanced budgets in a row. We did it without raising taxes. That sent a message loud and clear to the business community. Connecticut's uh, beginning to get its fiscal act in, um, together. Build on that. We hadn't added jobs today. We've got um, created over 100,000 new jobs that we're really working hard to fill right now. So when it comes to the economy, uh, we're telling that story loud and clear, but there's no getting away from inflation and how that slams the middle class. And uh, we did what we could. We put in place the biggest middle class tax cut in our history, and that's money that went in the people's pocket as early as this summer. Governor, there is some pushback from the Biden administration at the moment against the idea that perhaps the Federal Reserve needs a recession to really fully tackle on inflation and in doing that have unemployment rise. Is Connecticut prepared for such a move? We're as prepared as you can be. Um, for the first time ever, I've got a three and a half billion dollar rainy day fund. What does that mean? It's about 15% of our revenues. So I budgeted very conservatively. I assumed our capital gains was going to be going down, not up this year already. Combine that with the fact that I got 15% um, set aside in cash as necessary if our revenues shortfall. I don't want to do anything that upsets the apple cart. I don't want to raise any taxes. I don't want to slash education spending. That's what the 10 previous governors have done. That's not what I'm going to do. At the national level, Governor, as you know, there's talk about uh, lifting the debt ceiling if uh, Democrats take back control of Congress, although uh, you hear from many pollsters, they don't think that's going to happen. Given the fiscal policy that you're putting forward in Connecticut, is there something that Democrats can take away from on a national level from what you're doing in the state of Connecticut? I think anything that gives people confidence, you're uh, dealing with your long-term issues, just not the short-term, makes a difference. It's a sense of direction. I don't want uh, anybody playing games with the debt ceiling. I've been through this before as an observer when we're going to shut down government if we don't get our way. And now as a governor, I can tell you how disastrous that would be if there was a real risk that a lot of the ongoing support we get from the federal government was to be cut off uh, all of a sudden. So I really hope that's not a game that Congress is going to play. So then is uh, the spending that we've seen from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, is that something that you support? That's something I support. Look, Nathan, I'm a we got 100 year old bridges and um, uh, old roads, old rails. So uh, this is a big deal for us. Every president seems to be talking about infrastructure. Uh, Biden's the first guy since Ike, as far as I can figure out, to really be serious about it. Look, uh, we're geographic. We're between New York and Boston. I can take 20 minutes off your commute in each direction. It'll take, you know, five or six years to do it. But these are the types of investments that the infrastructure bill allows us to make. But these infrastructure investments were meant to kind of manifest, for for lack of a better term, over a much longer time horizon. We're talking potentially 10 years. It's not just about kind of roads and bridges. It's about, say, chip-making facilities uh, even I wonder, though, if there's a risk to the Democratic Party and to this massive infrastructure investment if we not only see a Republican sweep in in this midterm election, but potentially a Republican president in 2024. I'd be very surprised if they wanted to roll back the infrastructure bill. 
I mean, that that did have some bipartisan support. Uh, thank you, Mitt Romney. And um, I, that would surprise me. The Inflation Reduction Act, maybe you think we're putting too much money into um, charging stations or resiliency to prevent against flooding. But I think after Hurricane Ian, people say, hey, probably these are investments worth making. You know, I think you'd probably have gridlock if the Republicans take over Congress. and Not much would happen for the next two years. But uh, we've got a lot on our plate right now. I've got to make sure it's appropriately invested. Of course, there's a lot of talk as well, Governor, about uh, rolling back entitlements, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid reform as well. We've even heard from Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, saying that needs to be looked at as well. How much of a concern is that for you? I'll tell you what we've done here in Connecticut, Nathan. Um, you know, they were talking about walking away from our pension obligations to uh, state employees. We couldn't afford it and to let them fend for themselves. Uh, we've done just the opposite. Um, we paid down, not just made the required contributions to the state pension funds, but paid down about 10% of it. We're, look, we're no showcase. We still have a un big unfunded liability, but we're a lot better off than we were before. And I really urge the federal government to take it seriously. Everybody sort of kicks the can on Social Security. You can't do that any longer. Look what Chip and uh, Ronnie did back in 1982 or three. I think you'll see something like that going forward. That's a throwback. Tip and Ronnie. Yeah, I want to ask back. you about that a little bit in terms of the polarization we're seeing as well. I mean, you, you think of Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, you think about, you know, there was a time when the parties could at least make a show of working together. Now we have so much polarization in this country and threats of political violence as well. Of course, we saw what happened with the speaker's husband last week. How do we get past this polarization in our politics, Governor? You got to turn down the rhetoric, first of all. Um, I, I don't get partisan much, but I think uh, a lot of what Donald Trump was saying five years ago made the impermissible permissible. I can say here in Connecticut, I think we have lowered the temperature. I'm a business guy and a progressive, so I do pretty well with both wings, the uh, Republican and Democrat. I work like heck to bring people together. We've done a fair amount on a bipartisan basis, and anything I can do in that way lowers the temperature. Respect the voting process. Democracy is not a spectator sport. Governor, I want to ask you about violence in America at the moment, specifically politically motivated violence in America. There's a wide bipartisan majority of Americans who are worried about this issue. And I believe there's a new Washington Post ABC News poll that shows nearly nine out of 10 Americans are concerned that political divisions have intensified to the point that there's an increased risk of violence is something we've certainly seen here in New York City and, and across the country, I'm sad to say. But how do you tackle that? Social media has been a really, um, that pours gasoline on the flames and um, people are watching that. And a lot of things that you never say in person, you see ginned up. Uh, some of that's political. Some of it's just, um, you know, threats. Uh, somebody going online and making a threat about a school or something. And what do you do? Do you shut it down? How do you, how do you handle that? Um, I, uh, number one, um, like I said, lower the temperature. I try and lead by example. I'm not a very polarizing guy. At least I hope I'm not. I think that makes a, a difference. And I think as if you see something, say something. When I see some of the anti-Semitic and racist things that get um, in graffiti and other threats, uh, you got to say something loud and clear. You can't do everything by law. You got to do a lot by attitude.
Got about a minute left here. We appreciate your time, Governor. We know you're focused, of course, on your own reelection race, but we want to get your take on what you see from the midterms. Lots of talk about a potential red wave. Is that what you're seeing from where you sit in Connecticut? I hope not. I um, Sometimes divided government's not all bad. You, you force people to the center and get things done. Uh, I think if it was a big red wave, that would just be um, gridlock. I'm not sure that's uh, what you want. But I think, you know, for the Democrats, you got to take care of the everyday bread and butter kitchen table issues. That's inflation and that's a crime. You've got to hit those hard. We've done that here in Connecticut. And I think that's a message the Democrats ought to take around the country. The governor, we thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Governor. A real pleasure uh, to have you on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, Governor Ned Lamont of the great state of Connecticut, we thank you as always. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's get the take from our one and only Ed Ludlow, our Bloomberg News West Coast correspondent. He joins us from San Francisco. Once again, going nationwide from D.C. to New York <laughs> to San Francisco. Ed, in the context of today's jobs report, where you saw such strength yeah. um, across the board, tech sending a very different message. Yeah, it's been a really strange week. Um, you, you, let's state out loud that the, the layoffs at Twitter are sort of specific and anomalous in the context of other tech layoffs, right? Because Musk is doing something specific there. But what we've heard in the last 24 hours is Stripe, one of the biggest private companies, laying off 14% of staff. Lyft, the ride-sharing platform, laying off 13% of staff. Amazon pulling back on its corporate worker footprint in hiring. Um, and there are many others. Um, it, it, is a, it is a picture incongruous with the macro picture painted by these jobs numbers. But then again, this is about tech and tech leaders and executives at these companies battening down the hatches because they're acting on what we believe are signs of cracks in the strengths of the businesses that they're operating. Ned, I know you've been following uh, all the developments with Twitter very closely since Elon Musk took over ownership. There have been so many headlines just crossing in the last hour here about yes. uh, employees getting two-month severance pay once they get let go. And now Elon Musk tweeting that the company's seen a massive drop in revenue uh, from uh, advertisers pulling out. What do you yes. make of some of these latest moves? Yeah, so on, on the staff themselves, I mean, let's just 
call this what this is, it's deeply unpleasant that many thousands sure. of people are losing their jobs. I think that's worth stating. And that's not me giving an opinion. That's, you know, what I'm hearing from Twitter insiders, sources, and many people that have been laid off that I've spoken to. Um, the severance is not confirmed company-wide. We believe it will be 60 days. But in New York City, for example, um, I'm, I'm told that staff will be kept as non-working employees through February 2nd. They will be paid significant severance in that period. But they'll also stay long enough for another um, batch of restricted stock units to vest an RSU cliff, which, you know, is is additional compensation. Musk has not addressed the issues of layoffs. As you said, he tweeted that right now he's not talking about in the past. He's talking about in this moment, Twitter's revenue is being hit. Advertisers are pulling back. That's a concession from him. And why? Well, to Elon Musk's mind, what he's saying is it's because these advertisers are being pressured by lobby groups who are concerned about the content moderation on the platform. Ed, I also read, I believe, Bloomberg News reporting, which I want to say your name was on this, but I'm not 100% sure. But this idea that a lot of these Twitter employees who haven't yet heard about their jobs are actually joining unions, uh, some of them even already forming a Twitter alumni network. What does this do to the credibility of Twitter as a company when it does ultimately want to hire in the future? Yeah, look, um, before Musk took over, Twitter was a company of 7,500 people across the world, Asia, EMEA. New York City, San Francisco, it had a very distinct company culture. Um, Much of that was carried over from Jack Dorsey's leadership into Paragagrawal. You know, some of the reporting we've done, for example, is that Musk has taken pretty severe actions like um, cancelling what they call a day of rest. And there was so much readership of this story on the terminal, I couldn't believe it. Mm. So basically, you know, throughout the pandemic period, there was one day a month where Twitter staff were given the day off to kind of recuperate a, a day of rest. And Musk got rid of that um he's kind of that's just one example of him undoing the culture so on the unionization effort um what does it mean for twitter long term it's impossible to say you know all i can tell you is that there are lots of people um at twitter at all levels whether it's sales engineering marketing who love that company and are desperately sad that they've been part of this layoff process and and you know many people i'm told by sources were trying to find creative ways to stay. They volunteered for kind of the projects that Musk was pushing, like Vine or the Twitter Blue project, because they felt that if they volunteered for such a project, they might be seen as sort of willing and Musk might keep them. Um, But, you know, unionization efforts across technology have been a mixed bag this year. I think about Amazon, for example, guys. They've had some successes, but also some failures, too, um, in in unionizing different uh, workplaces. Well, just quickly, Ed, we know how resistant Elon Musk is to unionization just from what we've seen at Tesla. If this keeps going forward and now when we have a class action lawsuit against the layoffs unfolding, I mean, what could this mean for worker Musk relations in the new Twitter? Yeah, so um, Musk was sued, Twitter was sued by uh, a class action lawsuit here in San Francisco. The accusation is that workers say the company did these layoffs without giving enough notice based on federal law. I'm talking about warn notices, right? Um, We actually are still trying to report this out, but I imagine that there will be a number of lawsuits over the timing and how these layoffs were communicated, uh, both in line with federal and state laws. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow, always a pleasure joining us from San Francisco. To Never talk about- a day of rest for Ed Ludlow. <laughs> really? I don't know when he <laughs> sleeps. Uh, by the way, breaking news left and right on, on some of this yeah. reorganization. We thank you, as always, for your time, for your insight. Nathan, an exciting day 
for us, a yeah. headline number on for the for the for the jobs day, for yeah. the markets perhaps not so much because it doesn't feel like there's a clear message. Two hundred sixty-one thousand jobs on an estimate of just one ninety-three. Right, a little bit of a mixed bag when you see that kind of strong creation number on the payrolls, and also a little bit of an uptick on the unemployment rate as well. It's uh, maybe giving uh, investors a little bit of direction to look for, but certainly the uh, direction for the markets is up, up, up at the moment. It is, even as we start to see average hourly earnings tick higher as well. The labor force participation rate coming in line with estimates, but are we where we need to be? And is the Federal Reserve happy with this number? Let's bring in our next guest here, Jeffrey Cleveland, chief economist over at Payton and Regal to get his take. Jeffrey, thank you as always for joining us. This number that we got from the jobs report from a fiscal perspective, the Biden administration clearly celebrating uh, more jobs in America, but how much of a margin of deceleration do we need to really see the Federal Reserve, excuse me, perhaps take their foot off the gas pedal? Well, I mean, I tell you, there's something for everyone in this report. If you want to be bullish, you point to the non-farm payroll beat. If you want to be bearish, then maybe you point to the household survey and the rise in the unemployment rate. So you can probably tell any story you want to tell. I, I would tell you, though, you probably want to put more emphasis on the establishment survey and, you know, if we're adding jobs, the, you know, the three month average of almost 290,000 jobs per month in the last three months, that is really strong job growth. Um, the Fed, you, you've talked to, you listened to uh, Chair Powell the other day, was talking about the labor market being out of balance. And um, certainly, you know, from the payroll data today, it's just confirmation of that. You have very strong uh, job growth. So I think the Fed would probably prefer much slower job growth enough to get the unemployment rate up um, maybe a percentage point. So that would that would mean, I mean, if you do the math, you need uh, job growth really to stall out, to, to fall under 100,000 per month. And we're, we're not seeing that, 262,000 today. You know, Jeffrey, I wonder if uh, a lot of investors sort of took note of the commentary today from uh, Richmond Fed, Fed President Thomas Barkin saying that we can credibly say now that the Fed has its foot on the brake. Does this jobs report keep up the case for them that they can start to slow down on rates or does there need to be more data coming in? I don't think that I think it's too soon to jump to that conclusion. Uh, I have to tell you, I mean, again, you look at that household survey, you could say, well, the unemployment rate rose a bit. That's a sign of the economy slowing. I don't know if I would say that it's very choppy, noisy survey. Um, the unemployment rate's been kind of bouncing around where it is now for for the better part of the last six months, the the household survey is really choppy. Um, it's had some big gains and some and down months. So I, I don't know. I wouldn't I wouldn't confirm that. Uh, also, the wage growth data has slowed maybe a little bit month to month. I think the increase today was 0.4 percent month to month. It's a little bit slower than we saw you know earlier this year and then last year. But 0.4 month to month is still pretty strong uh, wage growth. Uh, we're we're hanging out around five percent year on year wage growth. And that is not consistent, in my view, with 2% inflation. I think it's far too soon for the Fed to say they're, they're putting the brakes on here. Thank you, Jeffrey Cleveland. I'm so glad you said that because I literally <laughs> have asked a lot of economists on the show whether to a 2% inflation target is actually reasonable um, um, in the long term when you have this sticky wage inflation uh, that, that won't really go away. 
But I'm curious how that squares with, for example, the Biden administration's moves to onshore a lot of manufacturing, onshore a lot of production. Doesn't that just create um, a tailwind, if you will, for a labor market that needs to have some of the steam let out? It, it depends. I mean, in terms of inflation, we have benefited from 25 or 30 years of globalization and technology where our, our goods, the goods side of your CPI ledger, if you will, goods prices were falling for most of that period. Um, so if onshoring means it's going to be much more expensive to produce goods, then you know that could be a problem for overall inflation. The, the reason we had 2% inflation for the better part of two decades you know, leading into COVID was that goods prices were falling. And that was offsetting roughly 3% services inflation. So it is to get back to that scenario, to get back to that 2% story, you, you probably need to see goods prices falling again, because I don't think we're going to see a big deceleration in services. I, I don't know if that uh, makes sense, but that's, that's how I uh, think about it. If we can onshore and still produce goods very, very cheaply, then, then maybe that will work out fine for the inflation story. We'll, we'll just have to see. I think it's too soon. To, to have a really strong conviction on that on that part of the story. So just 30 seconds left here, Jeffrey. Is 2% a realistic inflation target? Not in the next 12 months. No, I don't think so. Just because what we're seeing on the services side um, and then the, the goods side. We, we've seen goods prices decelerate, but they're not enough. And we're seeing very strong, as you know, services uh, price growth. So everything from medical care services to rents. Uh, we'll get an update next week, right? On Indeed. Indeed. I'm looking for another month of 0.5% month-to-month growth. So that is very right. strong inflation. So it's, it's hard to see 2% in the next year. I'm so glad we had this conversation, Jeffrey Cleveland. I just feel very relieved that someone agrees with me. Jeffrey Cleveland, Chief Economist over at Hayden Regal, we thank you, as always, for your insight uh, and your time on this Jobs Day in America. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.